Welcome to the Life of Christ Series 2, Term 3. This is Lesson 25. We are going to pick up where we left off. I don't know what page and chapter, but I can tell you we left off in John chapter 1 and verse 49. Yep, so if you find that scripture, then you're on the right page. Now, this was when Nathaniel makes a statement, Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Remember that? Okay, and... Um, Basically, he tells him, in fact, you know what, let me just go back to verse 47. How about we start there? And it says that Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Remember, this is the first reference to Jacob. An Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. There's going to be a second reference to Jacob as we read on. So it goes on to say in verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Right? So, again, Nathaniel was wondering if somebody said something to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, that's where we stop because there's a whole series of things that I wanted to talk to you about when we got to that verse. Now, first of all, the number of disciples that Jesus has accumulated, so to speak, is up to five now, all right? So that makes five disciples, definitely, all right? We have Philip, John, Andrew, Simon, Peter, and now Nathaniel, and maybe six if we count James. And remember, we talked about that before, that John doesn't tell on himself, all right? So he's writing this gospel, and it indicated at one stage that just as one of the other brothers went and spoke to their sibling, he did the same thing. And the terminology seemed to suggest that, but we don't know. William Hendrickson writes, The context forbids us to tone down the meaning of this confession. To Nathaniel, at the moment when he uttered this exclamation, Jesus was nothing less than God's own son. How then would he not also be the king of Israel, the long-expected Messiah? So to him, it was one of the same thing. Now, as to why Nathaniel had such a reaction and revelation is brought out in what Leon Morris says, the fig tree was almost a symbol of home. Its shade was used as a place for prayer and meditation and study. It seems that Nathaniel had had some outstanding experience of communication with God in the privacy of his own home, and that it is this to which Jesus refers. So see, now this starts to make sense. You know, if you were having a private time with God, and you had an amazing little revelation, you were dancing around the room, and Jesus comes and sees you and says, I saw you dancing around the room. You would freak out. Okay, because <laughs> the only way he could know that was if he was God. Because you had a revelation from God, and here comes the Word. The Word became flesh, and he's walking around among us. Amen? And we've got God back in our midst. It's an, it's an amazing thing. We're, we're going to see this further um, expounded on when we get to uh, John chapter 5, I believe. And some of the most amazing revelations about Jesus is in there that comes out of his own mouth. And a lot of times people have missed the significance of that chapter. You know, the healing of the man at Bethesda, remember that? After that, what he says is awesome. That's in book three. All right, <laughs> okay, when we get to it. All right, so back to this. That being the case, Nathaniel would know that only God would have known what happened to him and why he ex exclaims, you are the Son of God. But added to this, he also goes on to say, you are the King of Israel, proclaiming Jesus as his own king. Remember, Nathaniel is an Israelite. Okay? 
and thus submitting to him. So when he said, you are the king of Israel, he's basically saying, and you're my king as well. Amen. Amen. Okay. Now what's interesting to note here is that as much as the Jews wanted their king, okay, notice I put their king in quotes, to come and utterly conquer their oppressors, Jesus was not here as the king of the Jews, but as the king of kings and the Lord of lords for all nations and all people. And why he would say in John 18 and verse 36, when being questioned by Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. Interesting he didn't say to the Romans. He says, but now my kingdom is not from here. Continuing on to John 1 and verse 50, following Nathaniel's surprising confession, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, it goes on to say, Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? There shouldn't be a question there. You will see greater things than these. Now in the literal text, it is more accurate with regard to the context to read verse 50, not as a question, but firstly as a declaration. So Jesus actually says there, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe. Do you understand? That's what he's saying. He's looking at him and saying it like that. Okay. And second, as the resulting promise and reward for his faith, he says, greater things than these you shall see. Are you all with me? Okay. Verse 51 explains. And he said to him, most assuredly, he's going to tell, give him something that he was not expecting. He says here, most assuredly, literally, amen, amen. When Jesus put two amens together, you're going to get something really tremendous coming at you. Amen. All right. So also it's translated most solemnly, I say to you. Now it is significant that Jesus switched from the second person singular to the second person plural. What that means is when he says, I say to you, he wasn't talking to Nathaniel anymore. He was talking to you. Do you get it? Okay, that's what that all means. <laughs> Making his words universal in meaning when he said, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. Now here's the second reference to Jacob. Remember Jacob's ladder? Alright, but with one significant difference, here it says that they would be ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now that's incredible. What does that mean? William Hendrickson writes, As a reward for, his, for this manifestation of faith by Nathaniel, Jesus promises that Nathaniel and others with him would see even greater things. Namely, the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. A reference to the story of Jacob's dream about the ladder. Among these greater things we mention, the recognition that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but also the Son of Man. Hence, here it comes, the ladder between God and man. So this is going to be Jesus Christ. See, that's why, you, have you seen little pictures, and they have like a big chasm, you know, and there's you on one side, and God, and yeah, yeah, remember, and they put a cross in the middle with like a bridge that you cross over, and all that sort of stuff. Well, this really is what it is. It's not that little cross. Jesus closed the gap. He actually became all man, all God. See, this is the thing, you know, there is no gap between God and man, because God came as man. That's why he's called the Son of God and the Son of Man. Are you all with me? So, in that sense, 
we have, remember again, Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. And because of that, see, a lot of times we, we have this picture of, well, there's God over there. Again, you know, when you do that, what you do is you separate Jesus from God. It is so important that we don't lose sight that Jesus is God. We keep saying, you know, there's Jesus and God. No, 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 no. There's Jesus and then there's a the Father. There's a the Son and the Father. But they're both God. It's important because we're always having this problem with, oh, your religion and my religion. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Okay, and we, we continually have people going, well, you believe what you want to believe. You know, it's kind of like you believe the person you want to believe. I'll believe in the person I want to believe. Right? But the thing is that we don't believe in a person that is man. It's God. Are you all with me? And if that was, see, if we ever understood that and approached it that way, then when people say, you know, uh, you know who do you believe in? We believe in God. We believe that He came down in the flesh. We believe He took on humanity. Called Himself Jesus Christ. Are you all here? This is what I'm going to uh, help you with when we get to John chapter 5. Because a lot of people haven't read John chapter 5 because, you know, nobody knows what the heck he's on about there. But <laughs> Jesus starts talking about things that are only attributed to a divine being. And He starts talking about that He has life in Himself, just like God has life in Him. The Father has. And He talks about the Father. He didn't say God, He says the Father. Just as the Father has life in Him, so the Son has life in Himself. All of us are products of God's creation, but He is the person that gives life. John chapter 1, verse 4, in Him was life. Do you understand? And so we begin to realize, and we're going to see that as we get to it. This, is, this, this revelation here is sort of leading to that revelation. You know, remember again, this is the Apostle John writing all these things. So he's recorded some things that are just outstanding. And then he's going to back them up and uh, continue on with them later on in his gospel. Alright? And which we are going to see. And as we get these revelations, then we are going to start seeing Jesus in a new light. And we're going to begin to understand the judgment that's awaiting people at the end. Because he talks about judgment, that everything has been given into his hands. And he's the one that is going to judge. Can you imagine what the Pharisees were thinking at that point in time? Because he was talking to them. Because they were complaining about him telling the man that was at the pool of Bethesda to pick up his bed and walk on the Sabbath day. How dare he? And he starts talking about all of these things. So this is where this is all leading to. So let's get back to this. Leon Morris adds, He is the means by which the realities of heaven are brought down to earth. Can I say that again? He is the means by which, remember he's that ladder. Remember the, the angels are ascending and descending and they're getting a picture. See, they knew Jacob's ladder. They would have been one of their favorite Sunday school stories, you know, the synagogue stories, you know, okay? It would have been one of those things. And when he makes reference to this, and they're waiting for him to say, like that ladder, and he says, upon the Son of Man. So immediately they see the two as being one. And so it shows us that that is the way that we receive everything. Remember Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, there is the ladder. There is the connection. Amen? Alright, and so not only would the long lost communication between heaven and earth be restored, but what's more, just like in the Garden of Eden, God would once again 
walk among his creation. Hallelujah. In fact, Morris says that uh, Strachan regards this verse as the key to the evangelists, that's Apostle John's, whole conception of Jesus. His conclusion is, the wide open heaven and the ascending and descending angels symbolize the whole power and love of God now available for men in the Son of Man. And as for the term the Son of Man, Jesus uses it because it was rare with no nationalistic associations. All right, which means it wasn't Jewish, it wasn't anything other than he was the Son of Man. Not the son of a Jewish man. Did you get that? Amen? All right. But further to this, and more importantly, he used it to show that he was here on behalf of the entire human race to restore their power and authority back to them, as stated in Genesis 1.26. Now we're going to see more of, we're going to talk about this more when we get to John chapters 5 and chapter 12. Like I said, there's, there's a lot more to come. Finally, in his commentary on uh, John 1.51, R. Kent Hughes shares the following insights. Jacob's response to the vision of heavens opened, the angels, and God's word to him was a tragic statement. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. That is the tragedy of much of modern Christianity. We have de-supernaturalized life to the extent that we do not see God. God is in this place, and we do not know it. We go to work and do not know it. We go to school and do not know it. We have personal relationships, and do not know it. All the time, God is there, but we do not know it. This mentality even intrudes into church. We sing the great hymns, pray together, and worship together, but do not really know He is there. Tragically, our Christianity thus became an empty, monochromatic Christianity that is not interesting to the world or to us. Now, obviously, that's not this church, but that is a good summation of the church in general. Amen? In light of this, and the truths that Jesus shared in John 51 concerning the angels of God, Hugh shares the following story. On a dark night about a hundred years ago, a Scottish missionary couple, John G. Patton and his wife, found themselves surrounded by cannibals intent on taking their lives. On that terror-filled night, the couple fell to their knees and prayed that God would protect them. It was a horrible time. Intermittent with their prayers, the missionaries heard the cries of the savages and imagined them coming through the door to take their lives. As the sun began to rise, to their astonishment, they found that the natives were retreating into the forest. The missionaries were absolutely amazed and filled with joy. Their hearts soared to God. It was a day of rejoicing. The couple bravely continued their work. A year later, the chieftain of that tribe was saved. As the missionary spoke with him, he remembered the horror of that night and asked the chieftain why he and his men had not killed them. The chieftain replied in surprise, Who were all those men who were with you? And the missionary answered, There was no man with us, it was just my wife and myself. And the chieftain began to argue with him, saying, There were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling about your house, so we could not attack you. What a difference it would make if we would just determine 
to walk in these spiritual blessings all the time. Amen? Like Elisha did in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 6, 17, where it says, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened his eyes in the young, of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. Amen? That is still happening today. Do you know what the problem is? People are not believing. Do you hear me? There are some tremendous testimonies waiting still to happen. The book of Acts is continuing today. We're that continuation. Amen? And you know what? Heaven is still recording. Just because Luke stopped writing doesn't mean heaven stopped. And somewhere in there, your name is there. And you know, just like the Bible, it writes everything down. Except there's a minor difference. Whenever we ask God for forgiveness, chapters are erased. Amen. If we confess, if we acknowledge our sin, He is faithful, He is just. Justice demands. See, He's not only faithful to forgive you and cleanse you, but heaven's justice demands that you are forgiven and you are cleansed. You know what that cleansing is? All the records are cleaned. So there's nothing that the devil can point to in heaven and say, see, they did that. You have a record of it. It doesn't exist. The only place it exists is in your memory and in the devil's memory, which is the reason why you have to come against that stuff. Amen? You have to do that. You can't ask God to do it because He's already raised it. As far as He's concerned, it doesn't exist. Are you all with me? I pray this is one of the most healing things that you'll hear and take on board. Let's move on. Chapter 3. Jesus' first miracle. Alright. So three days after having gained his newest disciple, Nathaniel, making a total of either five or six, okay, and I've named them there. It says in John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now note the lack of any mention of Joseph. He's not mentioned anywhere in this gospel other than in the expression, son of Joseph. Now it may be that he died before these days. We don't know. Okay? Verse 2. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, which is about 30 mile journey from where they were. Now D.A. Carson points out that Jesus, his mother, and his disciples were all invited to the same wedding, suggests the wedding was for a relative or close family friend. It is therefore not impossible that Mary had some responsibility for the organization of the catering. Hence her attempt to deal with the shortage of wine. Added to this, William Hendrickson also points out that the author is consistent in not mentioning the name of the lady who was probably his aunt, the sister of his mother, Salome. Okay? Throughout the Gospels, he leaves himself and his close relatives anonymous. John does not even disclose the identity of the happy couple, says Leon Morris. The reason for this is simple. The apostle doesn't want to take our focus away from the main character of the narrative, Jesus Christ, and each of the signs that are recorded to prove that he was, in fact, God manifested in the flesh. All right, beyond this and of great significance is the fact that Jesus accepted the invitation to a social function. You know, let's just stop there for a minute. This is what I've said here, something that super spirituals would refuse to do. I, I remember when you know, we were going to church and you know, when the charismatic movement as, was sort of going and just was so spiritual. 
that you, you, you didn't want to do anything. I remember my poor dad had to deal with that with me. And you know, he'd ask me to sing a song, and I'd only sing a spiritual song. And it was inappropriate for the places that we were. And he'd go, sing a song, sing an Elvis song. No, 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 I'm not singing an Elvis song. Are you kidding? What's wrong with you? I will sing a Kenneth Copeland song. Oh, fly away. No, you know, I mean, oh, dear Jesus. You know, I, I just, you, I was there. I was in that super spiritual state that I couldn't sing or say anything that was not godly. You all here? The problem with that is, uh, if you get that spiritual, then, you know, you're probably not going to meet anybody and, and do anything to get married or anything. It's like this guy said that, you know, when, when he was in, the, in, in this movement, and, you know, there was, he was dating this girl and said, well, you know, l- let's go to a movie. She goes, oh, no, 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 we can't go to a movie. I, 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 can't, be, I can't be there in a movie when Jesus comes. And, and he goes, oh, okay. How about a football game? Oh, no, the, the cheerleaders wear short skirts. And he said, well, that puts out the basketball games as well. And so he said, what about bowling? No. He goes, well, what happens if I'm bowling? And, and you know, Jesus comes, a rapture happens. He said, let go of the ball. <laughs> but, you know, we need to understand something. Jesus went to a wedding. A wedding that they were serving alcohol. Now, there you are going to find preachers that are going to preach black and blue and said, oh, no, 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 brother. That was, that was just grape juice. Are you all heard that one? Okay. Uh, you know, the, the person at the feast wasn't looking for grape juice. Are you all here? And, you know, they, they, they have all sorts of arguments about it. And the thing is that you take away from the miracle when you start to water it down, so to speak. Amen? It's harder to, to, for this thing to be fermented and for it to be actually alcoholic than it is for it to just be grape juice. You all with me? Because it takes time, right? Okay. All right. So back to this. This tells us something immediately, and that is God wants us to enjoy life. And more importantly, life can be enjoyed and live to the full without sin. Amen? And we need to learn to do that, family, because, you know, one of the problems that we're having is that people are not seeing Christians happy. They're seeing them spiritual, and they're seeing them isolated, alright? And we're never meant to be isolated. Insulated, yes, but not isolated. And there is a difference. Do you hear what I'm saying? Okay, yes, we need to be insulated from the world, because we don't want the world to get in. Alright? Because whatever is in there, remember Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart your mouth speaks. It is your heart that is the engine that drives the thing that causes mountains to move and everything else. You know all that stuff. So you know you have to, you know, the Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence. For out of it come the issues, the forces of life. That's in Proverbs, I think, 4.23 or whatever. But the thing is that as much as we are insulated, we must not be isolated as well. We, you know, Jesus went out there. In fact, He was in people's faces. In fact, we're going to see, not, not only did He go to a wedding, when uh, Levi gets saved, you know, Matthew, you know, okay, tax collector, when he gets saved, he is going to go to his house and have a roaring party with him. It's going to upset everybody. Alright? So Jesus didn't have a problem with that. And we need to understand... How to have fun without sinning. That needs to become a part of our thinking. That it is not that God doesn't want us to have fun. We need to be out there to get people saved, to talk to people, to encourage people. Just be there to be a blessing. 
you see a need. There's so much going on out there. You know, people need to know that you care for them more than another notch in your belt. Do you understand? If all you're trying to do is get people saved, then that's what they're seeing, just another notch in your belt. But if you are seeing them for having a problem or something is going on and you go, what's up, you know, are you okay? Do you hear what I'm saying? All right. And they say, yeah, well, I've got this problem. And, you know, you say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. <laughs> you know, can I pray for you? Can I advise you? Is there anything I can do? Do you hear what I'm saying? And they might say, well, I don't know about the prayer thing. But, yeah, maybe you can advise me a little bit. You know, that's where it starts. After you advise them, they'll probably go, oh, okay, you can pray for me. <laughs> you know? If it's good advice, they're, they're going to think, well, the prayer is going to be good too. Are you all here? So, you know, we just need to learn how to do this. And we need to understand it's okay. All right, But we need to be salt, and we need to be light. We can't become part of the problem and a stumbling block for other Christians. Can I say that and move on? Okay. In fact, Jesus enjoyed and participated in various occasions to such an extent, and of course without sin, that he actually gained a reputation that he would have to go on to defend later on in his life, recorded in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19, where he says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, not just praying and fasting all the time, okay, with a forlorn look on his face, but eating and drinking that they, his accusers, say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners... Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. We will see this when we get to it. Too much to talk about now, all right? But there are verses coming that we're going to talk about, and you will get tremendous revelation on them. Now, returning to John chapter 2, with regard to the wedding, Leon Morris says that the procession and the feasts are the principal items of which we have details. The feast was generally prolonged and might last as long as a week. As a result, in this instance, all the wine was used up before the end of the feast. See, it's not just, it's not like us, we had an evening and that's it, we, you know, how could it run out? They go on and on. And if you got, you know, Uncle Dave that drinking it all up really quickly, you know, hello. You know, one of those guys that just sit there at the bar, forget the food, let's just keep drinking. Well, he's going to run out. <laughs> okay? So you can understand how this, this could happen. All right. And so it says in John chapter 2, verse 3, and we'll, we'll stop here and come back after the break, but let me read this. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus, noticing the embarrassing situation, said to him, We have no wine. Why tell him that? Can we stop there for a minute? Why tell Jesus we have no wine? You know something? Mary knew enough about Jesus to know that he wasn't going to jump up and down and say, What? You're serving wine at these occasions? I can't be here. I'm a spiritual. I'm leaving. Alcoholic, drunkard, bunch of, you know, okay? Can you all with me? She knew him enough to say, We ran out of alcohol. Do something. <laughs> and knew he would do something about it. Wow. Do you hear what I'm saying? All right. We'll pick this up after the break. Take a break.